Okay, well, hello, everybody, family and friends. This is Joshua and Kelsey here. Hey, everybody. We thought we'd jump on here and kind of have a chat with you guys. Yeah, so with everything that's going on in the news right now and a lot of concern, um, we thought it would be a good idea to make this recording just as kind of a more personal way that we could share our hearts with you, sort of have a chat uh, about our thoughts regarding this current crisis. And let me begin by just saying and, and reassuring everybody that we are safe here right now. Lviv is peaceful. Uh, we don't have soldiers in the streets. There's no explosions or bombs. Um, and except for the ominous news reports that we're all reading, life here in our city is continuing pretty much as usual. Um, and we have several things we want to share with you today. But before I get into those details of the, the crisis itself and kind of um, our response to that, um, I want to turn it over to Kelsey and she's going to share a few things as we get started. Right. Well, I want to back up to when we left Ukraine. I'm sorry, when we yes left Ukraine in September to come to the States. And due to several factors at that time, we came to the States kind of having our antenna already up to whether God was going to change gears for our family or open up some new door. And we still had the desire to be in Ukraine and we planned on returning and that was our outlook, but we just sort of were listening and watching for God's guidance um, for a few reasons, whether he would, would open up some new path. And as we progressed through our time there, um, nothing like that really formalized or took place. There wasn't any any revelations or, or um, you know, new doors opening. And on the contrary, we more and more had the desire, you know, in our hearts to go back to Ukraine and, and some new ideas for ways we wanted to minister and things like that. So as time went by and, you know, we were getting closer to our departure from the U.S., um, we did begin to hear reports about the, you know, the potential for a Russian invasion in Ukraine, and we were aware of that on the horizon. And so we did, we talked together about it, we prayed about it, um, we asked God to give us guidance. And significantly, um, w with COVID and with all the things that have been going on in our world, you know, there were several ways that God could have really shut the door for us and um, showed us that we were to stay or not go back to Ukraine at that time. You know, for one thing, conflict could have broken out. Uh, before our return, and that would have, you know, that would have been significant, or um, we could have been denied our visas, which we had applied for with a little bit of trepidation, just wondering whether we would be um, approved and whether there would be vaccine mandates from Ukraine, uh, which there weren't. Um, you know, we we didn't test; we tested negative for COVID. Uh, the various times that we tested. And at that point, everybody in the family was getting sick with COVID, with Omicron. And it just seemed like everybody we knew was sick. And we went in and we got these negative tests. And the last minute, you know, everything came together and we were able to go back. And so we really, I think God used that to kind of boost our confidence coming back into a situation that seemed potentially perilous uh, that, you know, he was leading us and that this was a place that we needed to be. And, and it was our home. We wanted to come back to our home and we wanted to be back in a place where um, where we could have, you know, some stability again and routine for our family and that sort of thing. So we feel like God led through many of those ways. And we, we have felt confident that at least for the time being, you know, he's called us to remain here and to continue moving forward, to continue trying to minister to the people here. And I think even just the fact that we're here has really been a, um, an encouragement at this time to our church 
and to some of the people that we know here. Um, so I'm going to turn that back over to Josh and let him tell a little more about the, the current situation. All right. So yeah, to start with, uh, and I'm going to talk about several different things here. I've broken it up into sections. Uh, but to begin with, I want to make it clear that our current intention is to stay in Ukraine. Um, and having said that, uh, I want to continue with a reminder that we have been here for a very long time. For me, that's over 20 years. And I think that because of that, we have a level of insight and maybe perspective on Ukraine that's just not possible for people that don't live here, that haven't spent their daily lives uh, moving in and, and amongst Ukrainians and dealing with the financial structure here and all the day-to-day -day, uh, uh, challenges and benefits that we experience here. Ukraine has been our reality for me at least, and for and I'd say largely too for Kelsey, for most of our adult lives. Mm -hmm. I also want to say that we here are not isolated. We are in very close contact with many other missionaries in Ukraine, um, most of them Americans, but some, um, some from other countries. We have some good friends who are from Czech. And all of us from time to time, especially in these kinds of situations when something's going on, we share information, we share news reports, we text back and forth. Hey, I just heard this. What do you think about that? Um, you know, this this report came out. Has that influenced your decision any? Um, and we share information back back and forth quite a bit. Now, the fact that we have currently made the decision to stay in Ukraine does not mean that that wouldn't change if circumstances changed, if the, if the situation were to warrant it. Um, but as I'll explain in a moment, I do not feel right now and, and, uh, that our family is under imminent threat. In other words, I don't feel like we're in danger of our lives or um, of being overrun. Uh, we have a lot of reasons why we continue to believe that Lviv is safe. Now, having said that, let me move on and talk a little bit about information sources. So when we, when we make, when we draw conclusions about what's going on, about what we should do, and is the crisis serious and what's happening, um, a lot of this comes down to where we get our information. Most of the people who have concern, and I would include us in that, are getting a lot of their information from news media. And if you listen to the U.S. media, you'll hear a very clear message, and that is that a full-scale Russian military invasion is imminent and that everybody, especially Americans, should flee the country now uh, while there's still opportunity. In fact, the most recent um, advisory, I guess, from the State Department was to uh, flee the country in no later than or in no more than 40, 24 to 48 hours. Um, having said that, being here, we have access to information sources that go well beyond U.S. media. And certainly anybody with an internet connection also has those. But in particular, I want to remind everyone that we, specifically Kelsey and I, speak, read, and write very fluent Ukrainian. We didn't just learn Ukrainian uh, so that we could, you know, chat with some neighbors. We have studied this language deeply. We speak it every day. We operate in it. We minister in it. Um, we publish in it. Um, I also understand around 80%, depending on the topic, 80% or so of spoken and written Russian. And because of, of these language um, skills that we have, this allows us to consult a very wide range of news sources. So on the one hand, yes, we're reading uh, Fox News, the Drudge Report, AP, the, the normal U.S. Uh, American media. But I'm also reading Ukrainian news outlets. I'm reading Russian news outlets and watching videos. 
Um, I've seen interviews with Putin. I've heard from Sergei Lavrov, who's the, the foreign minister there. Um, I watched a journalist, she was an Indian journalist, speak with a bunch of Indian medical students that are studying in Kiev. There are a lot of people from India here that are studying medicine in Kiev. Um, I've watched military analysis from current and former officials, and many of them even are divided in their opinion as to whether or not Putin is about to invade. Obviously, everybody that's part of the current administration is very much, you know, towing the party line that invasion is imminent and the Russians are on the border and the crisis could break at any moment. Um, but if you go further than that and talk to former uh, secretaries of defense, secretaries of state, um, think tank analysts, and so forth, you see a broader, more nuanced view that's not so simple as you might think it is just reading the headlines. Um, also, in addition to reading these uh, things and watching videos and so forth, I want to say again that we have the advantage of the fact that we live here and we have done so for decades. Many of the Americans who are in Ukraine have not been here more than a couple of years. They're here maybe because they work, maybe they're missionaries or maybe they work in the embassy or maybe they work with uh, some kind of a volunteer um, uh, mission or something. We have been here a long time, and because of this, we have extensive contacts with Ukrainians and with foreigners, not only in Lviv, which is our base uh, and our home city and has been this whole time, but also in many other major cities, including Kiev, Dnipropetrovsk, Odessa, Kharkiv, Ivano-Frankivsk, and others. Um, and we've been in many of these cities for ministry at various times. We have traveled throughout Ukraine. Uh, I, in particular, with, with different teams of guys, have traveled extensively through Ukraine, and this is an area of the world that I'm very comfortable in. It's an area that I know, and because of that, the, the information sources I have uh, are broader, and I feel in many ways give a more accurate overall picture than a person who's not been in country and who's just getting their information from Fox News or CNN or what have you. So having said that, um, let's move on to the question that maybe... Uh, is concerning most of us right now, and that is, will Russia invade? So to begin with, uh, as we answer that question, we have an obvious baseline there, and that is that no one has a crystal ball. No one knows what's going to happen tomorrow. I can't, I can't predict that, that yes, he will invade or no, he won't. Um, and in fact, it's quite possible, and this, is, this has been brought out many times on the news, that Putin himself may not yet have made a decision. Obviously, he's made many, he's taken many steps to put military assets in place. Um, but there are lots of times when countries and militaries do that and they put their assets in place in case they might want to make a move so that they're ready to make that move. Um, but then they might back down from that. And the, the same is true, I think, of Putin. Now, let me say that my general belief to answer this question, will Russia invade? My general belief is this. I do not think that Russia will attempt a full scale invasion of Ukraine with the intent to occupy. That is, take over the whole country and make it part of Russia. Um, now, I will freely admit that I am no military analyst. I'm a missionary. Um, I've been here on the field for two decades. Um, but I will say that the observations I'm about to make are ones that many others have also seen, and they have been proposed and discussed in public forums. Uh, I'm not the only one saying these things. You can find them if you read uh, interviews and analysis online. So, for example, um, a U.S. official recently said in an interview that Putin can take as much of Ukraine as he wants, but he can't hold it. He has the assets in place right now to invade um, and do massive damage, and I guess if he wanted to, he could push all the way from Donetsk in the east across the Dnipro River right up to the front door of, or the back door, if you will, of, uh, of Poland and NATO and, and take the whole country. But as anybody knows, Conquering territory is one thing. 
holding territory is an entirely different thing. Now, there is no question in my mind that Putin is a brutal dictator who would take as much as he can get without regard for human suffering. Uh, he has no regard for Ukraine's sovereignty. I don't think he actually um, considers Ukraine to be a legitimate uh, independent nation. Um, one one official uh, that was, she wasn't an official, I think she was a, an, an analyst, um, but she was speaking recently in an interview and she was warning people about um, I think what she called a mirror perspective. In other words, assuming that just because we wouldn't commit certain atrocities or take certain steps, we should not assume that somebody like Putin or the Russian government wouldn't do that. And I understand that. That's very clear. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't uh, suppose, um, or I don't assume that that Putin has the same moral compass as I do, or as as even your average American. However. Putin is also, I believe, a shrewd individual. He's a monster, but he's not a fool. Uh, in fact, he's often in, in articles and in discussions, he's cast as the noble or the worthy adversary. Mm. So in other words, if you're, if you're fighting Putin, if you're facing off against Putin, that's widely different than facing off with, you know, whoever the latest radical is that's leading ISIS uh, or some terrorist who's ready to blow himself up. Putin is not like that. Um, so let's then ask the question, what are Putin's goals? What does he want out of this chess game, if we want to put it that way? Um, and the answer that comes first to mind might be something simple like, well, he wants to take over the world. He's a, he's a monster. Or maybe uh, more accurately, he wants to rebuild the Soviet Union to its former glory. And while I think there is definitely some truth to the latter of those two options, I also think that Putin is enough of a realist to understand that he is never going to get the Soviet Union back in the way it was. The Warsaw Pact, as we knew it during the Cold War, is never coming back. That ship has definitely sailed. Now, to quote the CSIS brief that I linked to in our blog, and if you haven't yet, um, check out the most recent uh, blog post that we put out. It was in late January about our trip back to Ukraine and also some analysis on Russia. And I linked to a CSIS brief there, and a quote from that article said this, the Kremlin wants what it says, an end to NATO expansion, a rollback of previous expansion, a removal of American nuclear weapons from Europe, and a Russian sphere of influence. So with that in mind, let's imagine a worst case scenario that we would construct from all the implications made by all of this American media and the news articles, and that would be this, as I would see it. Russia invades Ukraine with a massive military push from all sides, overruns the country in a matter of weeks or days, and then essentially absorbs it into Russia. Um, I would remind you that that absorption part would be a massive undertaking, but that's another story. Um, and along with that, we can certainly envision all kinds of war crimes and atrocities and civilian suffering and collateral damage and just horrible, horrible things that many of us associate with the horrors of past wars that we've read about. Now, let's also, as we consider that, let's discount for now the numerous logistical obstacles that the Russians would face if they actually tried something like that. And let's instead ask, if Putin did that, what would he actually achieve relative to what we've already talked about, um, what people believe his goals are? Three things come to mind. First of all, if he did that, if he overran Ukraine and tried to occupy it. First of all, he would unite and galvanize NATO as never before. Putin doesn't want to do that. Putin wants to reduce NATO's effectiveness. He wants to divide NATO. Um, he wants to push it back. By taking over Ukraine, he would wake NATO up. In fact, to some degree, he's done that now already. NATO, in my recollection, has never been so vocal. Now, yes, you can point out some of the descent from Germany, the the hand-wringing and so forth. We can talk about Nord 2 and all those things. But by and large, I would say that NATO right now is far more united and galvanized against the Russian threat than they have been in recent memory. 
Number two, non-NATO states like Sweden and Finland would be far more motivated to join NATO. So in other words, that is NATO expansion. That's exactly what Russia does not want. If Sweden becomes part of NATO, if Finland becomes part of NATO, then in essence, NATO's borders are pushing closer and closer to Russia. And those then become countries that the United States, Canada, other Western powers would be bound to protect in the event of of a uh, military conflict. And the third thing is that he would most definitely become mired in what you might call the granddaddy of guerrilla wars. Think Vietnam, think Afghanistan on steroids. He is not going to walk in here and be viewed as a liberator. That is a pipe dream. Mm-hmm. Ukrainians, and this is this again is where I can speak, not from reading news articles, not from watching videos. I can speak from living in this country, speaking this language, living with these people, rubbing shoulders with them, talking with them, praying with them, crying with them. I know Ukrainians. I know at least the Ukrainians that live in the West, and I've had good contact with those in Central and East as well. They will fight for their country. They will not give it up without a fight. They are no strangers to partisan tactics, and they would bleed Russia severely. If you read the history of World War II on the Eastern Front, the Ukrainian army played a massive role in the push to expel the Nazis from the Soviet Union. Uh, many of them died, and they were in they were in the center part of that front. So the land that is now Ukraine changed hands many times. Individual cities and villages changed hands many times. These people were used to going into the hills with their 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 weapons, their machine guns, whatever, and blowing up railways, uh, hitting the Nazis from behind, doing whatever they could. Um, a Russian takeover a takeover of Ukraine would mean a horrendous guerrilla war for Putin. Now, what would that do? That would drain Putin's resources, it would diminish his influence, and it would do so leaving him at the back door of an emboldened enemy that, by his own words, is essentially his his nemesis. It's the thing that he, it is the entity or the, the, um, the force that he is most concerned about. Um, so all that to say, First of all, having said all that, I don't think we can sit here and say, so, yep, there's no reason for concern. Putin won't invade. It's all just fluff. It's it's a, it's a big hoax. I actually had someone write me the other day asking if this, act in fact, was a hoax. Some people they were listening to were saying, oh, this is all the Biden administration uh, concocting this, and it's, it's all fake. Um, there are politics. There is propaganda, to be sure. Um, but this is a crisis. Putin is here at the door, and he might do something. I don't know what he's going to do, but when I consider the facts, when I look at Russia's MO, when I consider previous conflicts, Georgia in 2008, Crimea in 2014, Afghanistan in the 70s, um, a a full and complete takeover and occupation of Ukraine doesn't add up uh, in my estimation and also not in the estimation of many other people that I've read and listened to. So having said that, let me move on now to another uh, significant question. And I know this is especially something that weighs on the minds of our family and friends and and people that know us and, and care about us and about many others who are here in Ukraine. And that is, are we safe? I think, I think perhaps more than anything, the people that we have contact with, um, back in the States, that's what they want to know. Are we safe? Um, Now, with that in mind, I think one problem for Americans who are concerned about people like us here in Ukraine is that they view our presence here in very binary terms. In other words, you're either in Ukraine and therefore you're in danger, especially now, or you're outside of Ukraine and presumably safe. Um, But that's not an accurate viewpoint. The reality is that Ukraine is a huge country. It's almost the size of Texas. It's, if you don't count Russia, it is the largest by far country in all of Europe. 
Um, now, if Putin does attack, there are strong indicators that he would do so first in the east or possibly in Kiev. To give you an idea, the distance from where we are to the current eastern front, so the area of the breakaway regions there, is over a thousand kilometers, something like 600 plus miles, depending on, on how you go. Um, so this would be something like people that live in Houston um, considering uh, the the threat or the impact to them of a conflict going on on the border with Mexico. Yeah, it, it would be concerning. And and by the way, we all as we all know, there's a lot of crazy stuff happening on the border with Mexico. There's cartels. There's illegal immigration. There's uh, there's you know a lot of violence and, and and bad things going on. But if you're in Houston or if you're in Fort Worth, you don't feel necessarily compelled to flee your home because you, while yes, that's technically in your country and yeah, even in your state, it's not in your backyard and you don't feel that imminent threat of violence to your to your person or to your family. Um, now, um, when you look at the situation in Ukraine from the perspective of the Department of State or the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine, I don't think they're going to try and muddy the waters or confuse people by trying to assign, say, various risk levels to individual cities or oblasts. When they issue travel warnings, they do that only at a country level. Now, yes, if you read the current uh, State Department travel warnings for Ukraine level four, they'll talk about things like don't go to Crimea, watch out for Donetsk and Luhansk. So I'm not saying that they ignore detail, but I'm saying that at least here to four, their messaging has basically stuck to this very binary uh, perspective. You, if you're in Ukraine, regardless of where you are in Ukraine, you should leave. That's their recommendation. Now, having said that, let me point out that recent events, recent actions undertaken by the State Department themselves demonstrate that their own thinking on that issue is more nuanced. In other words, they understand that a person in Ukraine, that not all people in Ukraine are equal by location. Uh, if you're in Kharkiv, that's very different than if you're in Lviv. Kharkiv, if you don't know, is on the far east side of Ukraine, very close to the border of, uh, of Russia. Or maybe if you're down south in Kherson, uh, which is somewhat close to Crimea, or maybe if you're still in like central east Ukraine in a place like Dnipropetrovsk, you know, people located in those various, uh, in those various regions um, they're going to have very different risk levels depending on how close they are to Russia and how likely their area of Ukraine is to come under attack from a strategic standpoint. Um, so to give an example, recently the, uh, the U.S. government evacuated all but emergency staff from their embassy facility in Kiev. And when they did that, some people left the country completely, but many people were actually sent elsewhere in Ukraine. The United States wants to maintain a diplomatic presence here in country, and so they sent their staff to a different city, and that city is Lviv. So of the whole country, of all the places they could have picked to relocate their staff to maintain a diplomatic presence in country, they went to Lviv. That's where we are. We are in Lviv. And this is just one indicator that we are not alone in our thinking that Lviv remains relatively safe. Um, other countries are taking the same steps. The UK, uh, Canada, Germany uh, are all moving their diplomats to Ukraine and setting up, uh, you might say, temporary uh, consulates or embassies here in Lviv. And in fact, this move has gotten so common that I've actually read that hotels here in Lviv are filling up with, uh, with diplomats. Um, so what that tells you is it doesn't tell you that the U.S. doesn't think Putin is going to invade. Um, what it tells you is they think that Lviv is not about to be uh, bombed or come under a missile strike uh, on Tuesday. Now, at this point, I want to talk about 
a little bit more theory, um, but very relevant to our situation. And that is what we'll call prudent action based on reasonable risk assessment. So you may be thinking after all I've said about, you know, military analysis and what if Putin were to invade and occupy and the three points and all of that, you may be thinking, well, why risk being wrong? Why worry about all this stuff? The Russian army is on the border. So grab your stuff, get your family and get out now and worry about Uh, you know, analysis later. And yes, on the surface, I understand that makes sense, that kind of urgency. But let me say that when you see the situation standing in our shoes, you realize that there are dangers and threats to our family and to other families who live here, which go well beyond military violence. In other words, the Russians aren't the only threat we have to consider. The Russians are not the only entities that could do damage to our family and harm us. Upheaval and disorder are also threats to our family. Weary, expensive, cross-Atlantic travel is very detrimental to our family. And believe me when I say I speak that also from experience. Our home is here, here in Ukraine, here in Lviv, and we don't want to leave unless we have no other option. Now, to help drive that point home, I'd like you to consider an analogy. I grew up uh, in the 80s in Fort Worth, which is right next to um, Carswell Air Force Base, or the area where we lived was very close to Carswell Air Force Base. My dad uh, worked for many years at what was then General Dynamics and later Lockheed, which is right next door to Carswell Air Force Base, which, by the way, is now the Joint Naval Reserve Base. And I remember in my childhood, it was often pointed out that that base would surely be one of the first targets of a Soviet nuclear strike. In fact, um, there no doubt were or maybe even are ICBMs that were already programmed, pointed right at it, uh, and they would, it would be one of the first ones to go in a nuclear strike. So imagine, in, with that in mind, that someone had said to us at that time, you know, how, how can you guys live here in West Fort Worth, right next to this base? This is ridiculous. How, how risky and, and uh, how reckless is this that you would raise children here right next door to this base that you know is targeted with ICBMs? Uh, consider that a rogue Soviet general could give the order and all of Tarrant County would be reduced to nuclear ash in minutes. So let me tell you what you need to do. You need to evacuate your family immediately to France. Across the Atlantic Ocean, go to France. That's safe. Uh, and don't worry, we have some friends there and they have said that they will let you stay in their basement. So get your suitcases, pack your stuff, just leave your house, leave your car, quit your job and go to France. Now, I would say, um, sorry, no, uh, we're not going to France. Um, Now, let me point out that such a person would be correct about the possible disaster that they're worried about, but they would be wrong about the proper course of action. Why? Because even in the 80s, the risk of nuclear war did not warrant the damage that would come from uprooting one's family and one's livelihood. We are not tourists in Ukraine. We didn't just come here uh, because we like strolling the cobblestone streets and sipping coffee in the cafes. We came here Firstly and foremost, because we believe God wants us here. But over the years, this has become our home. This is where we live. This is where we raise our family. This is where we work. This is where we minister. And unless something changes in a drastic way, this is where we plan to stay. Now, I realize that no path is without risk. And prudence is not about eliminating risk, but rather about taking reasonable steps to minimize it. There's nothing you can do to eliminate risk. There's no fully safe path. Our society today really tries for that. We try to take, we try to just uh, minimize or destroy anything that could possibly bring risk of danger. But the truth is that everything we do has risk. If you stay home, there's risk. If you get in your car and drive somewhere, there's risk to that. 
Um, so there's no path without risk. The prudent path is to choose the one that minimizes risk and takes into account the benefits needed in our case uh, for a stable family and and for the continues of our ministry. We have good reason to believe that Lviv is safe for now and for our family and that it will remain so in the near future. Furthermore, if war does come to the east, uh, or to the north even. It's possible that refugees, both Ukrainian and American, would come here. They'll, this happened in 2014 when war started there and people did have to flee their homes. They came west. They went to uh, western portions of Ukraine. Remember that many Ukrainians, uh, for various reasons, don't have the option to leave the country or it's much more difficult for them to leave the country. So for them, at least in the in the initial phases, evacuation would take the form of a western, a western-pointed uh, migration. And we, with that in mind, we, our family and others that we know here are well-placed to help and minister to these people. Minister to Ukrainians, yes, maybe we could help feed people or house people or give transport, but also help Americans. Like I said before, most Americans I believe that are in country right now have not been here nearly as long as we have. They don't have the contacts that we have. They don't speak the language. Um, they would be very much fish out of water if they had to leave their current location and just run across to Lviv. We can help those people. Uh, we can't help everybody, but we can help some of them and we want to help some of them. In fact, I received an email just last night about an American family who's currently in Kiev. They're trying to um, do an adoption. Um, and they may need to relocate to Lviv. And I was contacted about these people and asked if if, uh, my, if I would provide uh, my contact information and could we could we provide them with some assistance or advice or or information if they needed it. And of course, I responded that we'd be happy to, and that that uh, that person could pass along our information to them. So, having talked about that a little bit, um, let me let me cap that off by saying I'm not. It's not my intent to to denigrate anyone who has expressed concern or to to downplay um, calls to evacuate. If a person is here or a family is here and they feel that evacuation is the safe and prudent route for their family, no problems at all. They, they should do that. Uh, and furthermore, we appreciate the concern and the kindness of those who have already reached out to us and either shared information that they've come across or maybe encouraged us to leave or said that they think we should. Um, but for the reasons that I've stated at the moment, we feel that the proper, the prudent, uh, route for our family is to remain here in Lviv where we are. Now, I do want to say a little bit about, uh, contingency planning. Um, we have stated very clearly that our, our, our decision for now is to stay here, but we also recognize that things could change. And as I've stated before, um, our decision to stay is based on current data and events uh, as we understand them. And if circumstances change, our response may change with it. If we do have to evacuate, it is likely that we would go by land. We would drive west to a neighboring country. And I'm going to talk more about that in a moment. That might come as somewhat of a surprise. Um, you might expect that we would go by air. But there are a few reasons why I think a land evacuation would probably be more likely. Um, I want to say uh, that we've been contacted several times by the embassy and the State Department. Um, and at the request of the Department of State, we and many other Americans have filled out a new online form that gives information about our intent to remain in country and contact information about our family and where we're located and all of that. Um, the State Department has emailed us several times uh, to double check that information. And I've even received a phone call once from someone who wanted to make sure that we knew what was going on and ask if we had left or if we were staying or whatever. And I've heard reports from many other Americans who have received these calls. Um, so, you know, it's the, the State Department knows we're here. They know where we're at. Um, they understand the decision that we've made or they, they at least are aware of it. 
Now, I want to I want to talk about a different question here relative to these contingency plans. I know this is something that's concerned many people. What if convert commercial flights are discontinued? What if what if they stop? What what if we lose the option to get on a plane and say you know fly back to Fort Worth? Um, we actually have information that commercial flights in Ukrainian airspace may cease as early as 4 p.m. on Monday. So from the time of this recording, that's tomorrow, February 14th. Um, and apparently this is due to safety concerns from insurance companies that insure the planes, and they have said they will stop insuring planes as of 4 p.m. on uh, February 14th. And it's not abundantly clear yet whether this is all airlines or just uh, Ukrainian ones, if this includes flights out of the country from a far western point like Lviv, or if it's all traffic in Ukraine or what. But there is a very real possibility that commercial flights may end soon until this is all blown over. However, I want to point out something, and that is that if events were to progress to the point that we felt Lviv is no longer safe, uh, it's very likely that I wouldn't want to get on a plane even if I could. Um, if you remember, Malaysian Flight 17 was shot down over eastern Ukraine in 2014 because Russian uh, operatives, I think, mistook it for a transport plane, and they shot it down with a surface-to-air missile. Um, I don't want to be in a, in a commercial jet flying over a war zone. That's just a recipe for disaster. And I think many of the insurance companies and other airlines who are now canceling flights, they're remembering that. And they are, um, they, in fact, if you look at um, uh, air traffic patterns in Ukraine, a lot of airlines are already avoiding uh, Ukrainian airspace. Now, um, so that's one of the reasons that we might go for land. A, because commercial flights might not be available, and B, because even if they were available, it's not necessarily something we would want to risk uh, if, if things had, had really degenerated that far. Now, the embassy has provided us with a very nice summary of bordering countries that would make uh, a land exit feasible. Um, the best three options for us would be Hungary, Romania, or Moldova. Um, there are two other countries that are also actually closer, and that would be Poland and Slovakia. But for our family, they're not feasible due to COVID vaccine requirements. Um, now, I want to remind everybody that we do have a vehicle. We have the um, the old faithful yellow van. It still runs. Uh, we keep it full of diesel, and uh, we, we drive it quite frequently. Um, and so if we had to evacuate, we would likely load our belongings, things we could take with us, food and water and so forth, into the van. Um, and head for one of the three countries that I mentioned earlier. Um, that would uh, take us across the Carpathian Mountains, uh, which again is an area that we're very familiar with. We have traveled to, to the Carpathian Mountains many times. We have contacts down there. Um, and uh, I wanna point out also that we know many missionary families here in Lviv, and if things progress to the point that we felt compelled to, vac to, uh, to evacuate, I think many of the other missionary families who are currently staying, as we are, would probably also be drawing similar conclusions, and it's quite possible that we would try to caravan together and go as a group, say, to Romania or wherever. So I realize that's been a lot, but in conclusion, let me just say, we are not naive. We are not in denial. We know the Russians are at the door and we know there is some danger, but our choice to stay is one that we've made with our eyes open. It's based on data. It's based on our experience of decades in country. And mostly it's based on our belief that we are in the will of God. We want to say that we're grateful to everyone who has reached out to us with concerns. We value your concerns. We love you. Um, we feel um, honored and valued that you would talk to us and, and share information with us. And we continue to remain open. If you have thoughts or questions, or maybe you have uh, a reaction to what I've said here, or something hasn't been clear, please keep talking. Please, uh, please reach out to us. 
And I also want to say, please pray for us. Pray for Ukraine. Pray for Putin. Remember that in the Bible, it says in Proverbs that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And as the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. God is able to turn away Putin's heart from war. He can turn Putin back to take all his war equipment uh, back to Russia or back to other parts of Russia. Um, and so we should keep praying. God is faithful. God is leading us. We know that he will continue to lead us and we will continue to trust him. So thank you very much for listening to this. We love you all and uh, we'll, uh, we'll be in touch. God bless you. Thank you guys. We love you.